Okay,、uh, why don't we begin? From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. I have a story to tell. I have a story to tell. The subject matter of the personal documentary is life itself. It's it's、uh, you know things like loss and redemption and betrayal and loyalty and and in that it it really is a lot closer to fiction, fictional storytelling, than、uh, non-fictional storytelling because it's dealing with the substance of life. I have a story to tell. Ten years ago, a new show called Outfront was launched on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Now, the idea was simple yet groundbreaking: no reporters, no hosts, no interviewers of any kind. Instead, listeners did the work, borrowing mics and tape recorders and telling their own stories, whatever they might be, with the help of a seasoned producer. More than 1,300 episodes later, the Daily Show has won a room full of awards, including a few from us at Third Coast. Today on Resound, we celebrate 10 years of Outfront—the stories, the people, the stories behind the stories, and of course, the people behind the people. Neil Sandel joined Outfront as a senior producer four years ago. He estimates that over the life of the show, the staff has fielded more than 8,000 pitches or story ideas from across Canada. Any listener can send one in, which means that the story ideas are as varied as the people who hear them. Let me just grab my、uh, loosely binder from what we're going to be considering on today's、uh, story meeting. We we meet once a week, and all the producers read all of the pitches. So really quickly, forty-something、um, woman. Has landed us a role in an opera, small role in opera. Wants us to document the journey.、Um, another person has come back to Canada as a woman who's been touring Africa for some time, and along the way she met and married、uh, an African man. Then, then quote, I found out that he's a heroin addict, but he gave it up for me, and we've been married now for three years.、Hmm. So. There's a story there.、Okay. Somebody who's aspiring to, who's at a, an elite athlete who hopes to document her qualifying for the Olympics in Beijing.、Uh, a young lawyer who wants to、I、explain to people why he defends、um, people who are maybe unsavory, and on it goes. We at Third Coast have heard a lot of Outfront stories over the years, and today, on their 10th anniversary, we've selected four to play for you. We start with Ironing Man from the 2006 season of Outfront. It's a collaboration between rookie producer Christine Atkinson and an old radio pro, Lawrence Stevenson. He also happens to be a professional musician and created the beautiful sound design in the piece. According to Neil, Ironing Man captures the poetry in a very small, seemingly mundane daily act. My name is Devin Slater. I live in Toronto. I'm a very fast, very talented ironer. I like ironing because it's the only part of the day I get to think, and it's it allows me to breathe. And I think the sounds of ironing are 
sort of represent that breathing, which is like the steam sort of breathes through the fabric. It's, it's exhaling, the steam is exhaling. And so that makes sort of makes you exhale as well. I like to iron in a very quiet room with nothing else on because you hear, you hear the, de the details of ironing. There's clicking, there's, there's the steam sound, the whoosh, the breathing of the steam, and the, the spray, the spray starch. It's, and then when the, uh, the starch lands on the fabric, is, that's another nice sound, it's like rain. Watch how fast I do the arms. One thing I like to do is iron my, my girlfriend's uniform. My girlfriend is a flight attendant. Sure, she's a trophy girlfriend, yes. And you could say, it's, it's like I'm polishing her in a way. It's kind of like dancing in a way. It's like dancing with a lady. It's, there's, there's control and there's movement and, and there's, there's, there can be passion in ironing. There really, there can be passion in ironing. Especially when you put the iron shirt on. Job well done, you feel great, you're hitting the office late because you had to iron, but whatever. <laughs> sorry, sorry I'm late. That wrinkle just wouldn't come out this morning. I think here in the city we communicate simply with our eyes. We don't have to talk to each other because we can communicate with each other on, on the looks that we, we give. And that happens a lot when you're going to work. And it happens a lot when you're at work. And it happens a lot when you come home and then you take off your uniform and you can be yourself again. So I think ironing represents preparing for that. I think I'd be the ironing champion of Toronto. It'd be a fun, it'd be a fun sport. The ironing time trials, then you'd have the steam off, and then you would move to the the starch fight, maybe. Do you know why I iron? Because I'm nervous, and ironing is a device that I use to um, make myself feel better in the morning. But I also, when you're when you're ironing, you can you're, you can get lost in the fabric. You get lost in the patterns. You get lost in the color and the wrinkles, and trying to iron those wrinkles out. And it's relaxing, and, and you can think about everything in your life, and you get a chance to reflect. You're ironing out the details of your life. Man was produced by Christine Atkinson and Lawrence Stevenson. Over the course of the year, more than 800 story ideas are submitted to Outfront, and maybe 130 or so make it to the air. Those are some long odds. I asked senior producer Neil Sandel just what they look for in a pitch. What it boils down to is 
we're looking for a kind of an inner voice. I think that's what really draws people into our program. It's that authentic people thinking about themselves, thinking to themselves. And if you analyze a whole bunch of these stories, very often it's people are exploring something that's outside their comfort zone. And um, when people say, I, I don't know what, you know what story to tell about myself, I, I usually ask them what's unresolved in their life. And I, then uh, as a, just as a game, but a useful game, I say, well, think about a, a secret about yourself or what's a lie you tell yourself or what is something that you would whisper to yourself in at three in the morning when you're lying awake. And very often those things really get at the heart of something that is important to them. Outfront really marries narrative with interesting sound within the story, and that's not something all narrative does. It, yeah, it's it's part. Of, it's not window dressing. It's part of the storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, whether that be the use of music or sound effects, but also the idea that if you're doing a documentary, you're creating scenes, and those scenes will engage the listener's imagination. Where it's appropriate where it's appropriate for the story, we like to make our programs absolutely married to the medium of radio, which is a one-to-one medium. It's a medium that allows you to play with uh, back and forth in time, go into memory space, go into the uh, you know one's imagination. And uh, we talk on our show about radio, something being radiophonic. So what does that mean? Well, our kind of thumbnail definition of radiophonic is if you were to write out, a, type out a transcript of everything that you heard and read it, it wouldn't be the same as what you were listening to. Something would be missing. Our next story is a perfect example of what Neil calls radiophonics. It's from the very first season of Outfront in 1998 and was a milestone not only in the development of the show, but in the development of the radio documentary more broadly. The stories aired all over the world. It won the coveted Pre-Italia, one of radio's highest honors, and it remains a touchstone of personal documentary making. It's called The Change in Farming, and it was produced by Adam Goddard, a young composer from Toronto, and Steve Wadhams, a veteran producer at the CBC. My grandfather's name is Henry Robert Tyndale Haas. Hey there, Papa. How are you doing? Good. He lives in a farmhouse near Grimsby, Ontario. I'll tell you what, I brought some... Well, well come on in here. Okay, just a second. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. I don't like taking my boots off when I go to a place. It's the house where he was born. I'll light some lights, see if it's kind of dark in here. Dark all over today. He's 89 years old. My eyes are bad this morning. Everything's pretty blurry. Is it? I tried to read the paper with a magnifying glass. It don't work. The pet damn print on that paper's yeah. rotten. Yeah. I thought you were going to play a tape that you made. Yeah, I am. Where is that? It's right here. It's in the... Uh, so I just put it... I br- just brought the machine with me. I, I had it on a CD. I'm Adam Goddard. I'm 25 years old. I'm a composer and a musician. My studio is in Toronto. 
I'm also using a piano expansion. Has a beautiful, beautiful classical piano sound. French horns. And, you know, here's examples of uh, digital watches. And that is a recording of a toaster that's stuck. Using unconventional sounds is 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 a is an interesting way of putting your your thumbprint on a piece of music. But the most important thumbprint here is is having part of my heritage ingrained in music. I'm talking about my grandfather. He's never been to my studio, but his his voice is here. I've taped a lot of of stories that he's told, uh, a lot of memories about his past, and and uh, I've got hours and hours of just storytelling basically I'd like to talk about I'd like to talk about the change in farming All right. the change in farming like when it went from the binder mm -hmm. to the combine to the balers to the silo fillers all that big change. I'd like to talk about the change. I'd like to talk about the change. So you can hear he's got a very rhythmic, rhythmic voice. The change. Um, the pitch that he talks. He has a lot of, lot of um, variation in the tone and pitch. And I find that he, he, he speaks somewhere between the key of B flat and C sharp, which I think is kind of interesting. So <laughs> I've done one piece in C sharp where he's talking about his father. But when he's talking about the change in farm, he tends to talk in the key of B flat. Then they come out with machines that cut the corn in the field and blew it into a wagon. He's a, uh, I, I swear he's... Machine? That's an F and a B flat. It's right in the key of B flat, so it's perfect. You know, you just hear, machine, right? Machine? Do-do. Okay. There's only, there was only two guys, one guy drawing the corn, the other guy operating the machine in the field. Where before there was a, maybe 12 guys working. That's supposed to be improvement, eh? But then I said, you know, I, I asked him, do you think, do you think that, that that is improvement? He says, oh yes, you know, because uh, as, as far as, it, as, far as uh, a workload goes, we can produce more. And, and his attitude is, okay, less people would be working on that farm. But that doesn't mean they're un that'll be less employment. That means there'll be more, uh, more produce made and it'll bring down the cost of food. Another thing that I'd like to bring up is they come up with, uh, they started what they call in, in artificial insemination. And they, for, they formed a, brood, a, brooder, a breeder's organization, see, where they kept different bulls, like uh, uh, Holsteins and Ayrshire's and Jersey's and so on. And they'd collect the semen from those bulls, and then they would... We, they had uh, in, guys what they call inseminators, and they would go around and breed your cows. We did away with all the bulls. Yeah. Okay. That's supposed to be improvement. It certainly was. Artificial insemination. So I've, I had a drum beat 
that I was using, that I was planning on using later on, going boom, cut, boom, boom, cut. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to work. Work or not. That's worth a shot. The average cow, we'll say, is given 40 pounds of milk. See? They brought these bulls in, and over the period of few years, they've raised the production of that cow up to 70 pounds. We did away with all the bulls. I think the most important thing to me is that uh, that uh, he understands why I'm, why I'm doing it. Um, He's a foundation. He's a figurehead in the family. He's, <laughs> he's um, he always gets the chair in the middle of the room, you know, and uh, <laughs> rightfully so, I think. So, I mean, I'd 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 love to be like him when I'm his age. Well, I'd like to be like him right now. The change, the change in farming. Yeah. Okay. This piece is called The Change in Farming. And what I did was I recorded you talking about a couple changes in farming. Well, that was when the, that chap was here with the picture. Oh, no, it's quite different from that. No, this is from another recording. Oh, I never had any other recording, did I? Yeah, I came up quite a while back. Oh. This is a long time ago. Oh. And you were talking about the changes in farming. You are talking about how the changes with combining. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the changes with, uh, yeah. uh, you know, um, artificial insemination and how, how oh, yeah. now cows can produce a lot more milk. And uh, I took the, you know, you have a very musical voice. I don't know whether, what? You, I don't know whether you realize this, but your voice is musical. <laughs> I can't like, sing with this we'll, we'll, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I'd like to talk about the change. I'd like to talk about the change. I'd like to talk about the change. The change in front. How's it oats and how's it oats the bananas? Machine when I went from the binder machine to the combine. You remember that piece of machine? To the balers, to the silo fillers. Oh yes. Certainly was. All that big change. That's supposed to be improvement, eh? Certainly was. Artificial insemination. The improvement. We, they had uh, in, guys what they call inseminators, and they would go around and breed your cows. We did away with all the bulls. A change. A change. Sometimes they didn't use a team. Sometimes they used a little tractor. The change, the change in farm. I often wonder sometimes how I ever did the, do the work. Change in farm The change in farm in, 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 in the barn. See? Well, I remember. I remember. I remember. I bought my first combine, corn in the field. It seemed funny. There'd be two of us working. Well, well, taking the place of 15. Well, well, 
government for changing and changing. Changing and changing. That is the reason higher production has kept the price in the store where it is. I'll tell you how you're going to reap the benefit where it is. The store. The change. The change. Sometimes they didn't use a king. Sometimes they used a little tractor. The change. The change. Now we run out of tape. <laughs> eh? Right. So anyways, that's it. Now I don't understand this. Yeah? Repeating myself all over. Yeah. Why? Why, why do I do that? I don't. Uh, that's a musical thing. Is it? Repetition. Oh. Yeah. I wanted to pick up some of the character in your voice. Hmm. Talking about something I didn't know I had. Well, you do. As long as you know what you're doing, that's the main thing. That's right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a, a guinea pig. <laughs> right? Right, right. But anyway, we can go out to the barn now, eh? This, uh... This farm has been in the family here. Well, my dad come here as soon as he got married. This is the main old barn that you see there. And all the rest has all been built on. That's, that was built in 19... And you hear Confederation. All the beams in there and so on. But this is all new, all this stuff here. The Change in Farming was produced by Adam Goddard and Steve Wadhams. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today on ReSound, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Outfront, a groundbreaking show on the CBC, which invites listeners to tell their own personal stories on the radio. One of the things Outfront has become well known for is its deeply personal and natural narrative style. The voices that you hear on Outfront are authentic because the producers slowly tease out each story through a series of revealing interviews. I'll let senior producer Neil Sandell explain. At some point in the process of making this documentary, you want to get that kind of inner layer. So we've developed certain techniques, and the goal of these techniques is to get people to tell their story uh, and also to get these reflective moments where they're thinking about things, where they're creating pictures uh, for the listener, and where they're evoking the past. We ask people to speak in the present tense if they're talking about the past, so recalling a story as if it's happening, and we ask people to do the interview with their eyes closed so that they're not uh, responding to the person asking the questions. They're just they're trying to get to that point. It's where you're... You know in a dream, it's almost like you're watching this movie, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and you see these images go across a little screen in, in in your mind's eye. If your eyes are closed while you're doing the interview, you can get to that place a little bit more easily. And then the third thing that uh, we usually do is rather than ask people questions, we give them um, sentences that they'll complete and then can free associate with. 
So we have a piece of tape here we're going to listen to that kind of is an illustration of just what we're talking about, this kind of interviewing technique. And um, it's from a story you produced called The Life of Pi, and we could talk about it after we hear it. Let's listen. You know what? Don't care about what you're saying, okay? Okay. Tape is cheap. So I don't have to worry about long thoughts or... No, you don't have to worry about long thoughts. You don't have to worry about saying things... um, like bad grammar or anything like that. It just doesn't matter. Okay. Just be who you are. Um, I'm riding I'm riding my horse into the secret clearing that I know. Something like that. But take be be there. Like do it in the sort of present tense. Okay, I am riding. Um I'm riding my horse into this secret clearing that I know at the far edges of our property down by the pasture and the air under the trees is cooler and the light is falling through the trees and it makes this dappled pattern on the floor of the clearing. My horse is beside me. My horse... (laughs) Sorry. My horse is always beside me. When I'm out on the farm, by myself. Is is there ever a delicate balance that you feel needs to be, you know, reached between putting someone in a relaxed space and sort of coaching them, if you know what I mean? Hmm. You mean pu- push, pushing them? Right, right. Do you ever feel like there's a fine line there, or do you feel pretty comfortable that, you know, this is just sorting, sort of setting the stage and they go from there? I feel comfortable about it because they have control over the story. You know, one of the real signature elements of Out Front is that there's no third party telling the story. The person who's telling the story always is telling their story or a story about, or they have a stake in the story. And they're crafting the story with another producer. So it's it's different than a journalist going out and getting somebody's story and then Retail. interpreting that story. Right. So ultimately, they have the say-so about what part of their story they want to tell and whether we use certain tape or don't use certain tape. And sometimes people will say, I'm not comfortable with that part of it, and uh, we will discuss it and come to a mutual agreement. But I take your point, and uh, you know, I think the people who work on the show are trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's base- basically. I-, I think it ends up boiling down to trust, and we don't exploit people, and and we won't allow ourselves to exploit people. So this sort of ties into something else I heard you say, which was that the worst thing you can do is catch someone when they're falling. What did you mean by that in terms of storytelling? 
It's a natural tendency when somebody's in heavy emotional weather to say, you know, they're there, mm-hmm. you know, to to hold their hand and hug them and everything. And it's a good instinct. When you're trying to get them to tell their story, as soon as you do that, you take them out of that emotion and you stop it. And really what you want to do is allow that person to continue exploring that moment and and that emotion. And so it doesn't serve your purpose as somebody who's trying to help this person tell their story to stop that and to give them some comfort at that moment. You, Of course you want to comfort that person and help them, but you just have to put that on pause for a few moments. As Neil said, sadness and grief are familiar territory for Outfront. And our next piece, called One Blue Canoe, is an example of how emotionally layered and complex their stories can be. It was produced by James Raffin, an outdoor educator and writer who lives near Kingston, Ontario, and Karma Jolly, an experienced producer at the CBC. Hello. brown garage here. There's a hole in here. Oh, I can see the blue edge of the canoe through a crack. Welcome to Out Front. I'm James Raffin in Port Carling, Ontario. This is a story about two people one event, and the strange circumstances that brought us together. There, I've got the timbers pulled away from the door. There's a wagon wheel just inside, and it looks like the contents of a well-chewed foam mattress, corrugated iron walls and roof, and behind all this in the gloom, is the famous blue canoe pulled from Lake Temiskaming with 12 dead boys and one dead master. On June 13, 1978, I was teaching at an outdoor education centre north of Toronto. I was listening to the radio, and this report said that a large number of teenage boys and one master had died in the cold water of Lake Temiskaming, which is on the border between Quebec and Ontario. It was a tragedy that occurred on a school trip. I was involved in 1978 as an outdoor education teacher taking students on canoe trips and my initial response was anger. How could that happen? I didn't know any of the boys personally but it just would never go away in ways that I just couldn't explain or can't understand. So as time moved on, I actually wanted to write a book about 
the essence of taking students on canoe trips, which is about building character with risk. And you don't go very far down that path before you run smack into Temiskaming. So I wrote a book called Deep Waters. It was the first telling of the story of Temiskaming. But it still was niggling in the back of my mind. Then the strangest phone call came. Um, I think we're planning to put it in the water here, but we could take it over to the dock. If you, no, if so you, if where would you want these? Just down to the right here, Barb. Okay. And uh, so it was a real surprise when the phone rang out of the blue, and it was Barbara Graney. Barbara Graney uh, was not a person I interviewed for the book uh, because I couldn't find her, but her son Davy was one of the 12 boys who died in the tragedy. She said, you don't know me, but um, you know who I am. And, and I don't know you, but I know who you are. And it was starting to sound kind of, kind of ominous. And then she said, and I have something to give you. It's one of the canoes. It was the canoe that Davy was in. And where am I going to be right now? You'll be at the middle, right at that chestnut sticker right, right there. Right here, yeah. and I can't and, reach it. And as it comes down around, if you could just grab the gun off. Grab the gun. Yeah. Oh, I see. Once you turn it yeah. over, you mean. I mean, it's the strangest thing. This canoe, it's been in this shed for 27 years. It was brand new the day they used it. It was used one day, and now here it is. The only real condition was that she wanted to paddle in it. Can you push that end out a bit? Do you have a side you prefer to paddle on, Barb? Probably this side. Okay, I guess is we'll this just get this end going? off the... We're sitting side by side. Uh, in the canoe. We've given it a good scrub with warm water and a gentle rinse of Murphy's oil soap to get the, the grime off. So it's actually pretty and shining in the sunshine. Barb, she's not looking around very much. She's, she's thinking. And slowly, she's remembering. Well, he was, he was a real sweet little guy. He was uh, more caring of other people, more empathetic than a child his age was supposed to be. And I specifically remember this little boy that lived on the corner who was probably hyperactive, who was a real pain in the neck, and none of the kids wanted to play with him. And Davey would always try his best to get him included, even though he annoyed him. You know, he'd say, Bo, Dan, stop that, you know, but he'd make sure he was included. Oh, and when I remember uh, his, uh, the teacher saying Davy liked the little girls, like I think he always quietly uh, had a special girl that he admired. How that would have played itself out as a teenager, and I'm sure there'd have been girls in our our household fairly quickly.
not a very complicated story. And they headed north from the wharf at the town of Temiskaming, right on the Quebec-Ontario border, which is a bit like a 90-kilometer-long bowling alley. It's got steep granite cliffs on both sides, but the wind tends to rifle up and down that lake. So the wind came up behind these four canoes, and one of the staff members was not a strong paddler. In fact, he had never steered a canoe in his life. And the ethos of the school was that, oh well, you'll learn as you go. And um, his canoe foundered. Uh, he didn't. He had all the smallest boys as well. And it upset in the waves. And in the melee that ensued with procedures they hadn't really practiced, um, all four canoes ended up being upset and the water was very cold. Some of the boys held hands and sung hymns. They were all in keyhole life jackets, which are those great mattress-like things you pull over your head. One of the, th the beauties of a keyhole life jacket is that your face can't go in the water. If you go face first, they'll roll you over. When they found the victims the next day, the ones who were in the water, their eyes were open and their hair was dry. So they didn't drown. The cold water was really the cause of the, of the death. It was a muggy, rainy Monday. We had some dry cleaning to pick up, so we decided to all get in the car, go get the dry cleaning and pick up hamburgers. It was six o'clock and I was sitting in the car listening to Gordon Sinclair. And of course the first thing he said was that there's been an accident like Temiskaming, a uh, Toronto area school. And I just sat on the horn, just sat on the horn. And Andy came running out and he said, they'll never survive the cold water. And uh, so we went home and, and called out to the school and were told to come out. We just sat around for the longest time waiting for them to call and say who had had died. One lady, I don't know who it was, really lost it and people were trying to carry her away. I was just sitting there in the midst of all this thinking it couldn't be Davy because he was so competent in the water. And that's really why he died, because he was competent in the water. He was kept in with helping these other boys out and he was so slight, he didn't have any extra fat to protect him. The theory that underpinned this canoe trip was that it was the obligation of the teacher to put before the students difficult challenges that would force the students to dig deep into their own personal bags of resources to come up with what they needed to meet the challenges of the day. St. John's School in particular was very Spartan in its approach to that, militaristic and I mean they had corporal punishment, they used to beat the boys with a stick. 
The outfitter who found the boys took me down the lake to help me understand what he had experienced that morning. And he described the hopelessness of finding these beautiful young men, these boys, in their keyhole life jackets floating, and how he was just completely overpowered by the, the hopelessness of that. But then he described this surge of hope that he felt as he was driving through the mist calling for survivors and seeing a boy sitting on the shore. He got this incredible sense that, oh, finally, you know, somebody survived. And when he got close, he realized that this boy had got himself to shore and he'd kipped up on a rock and he was, he was dead. As a result of conversations with other survivors along the way, I've come to the conclusion that that boy was David Graney. The image of a boy who was given these unspeakable challenges to turn him into a man and who met the challenge, but who still died. I, uh, I just can't deal with that. Barb decided that for her the best option was to give the canoe on permanent loan to the Canadian Canoe Museum, who would then turn it into an educational exhibit. Davy was a wonderful little soul. All he needed to do was have some confidence in himself in, in the classroom. It wasn't worth his losing his life. Um, I don't, there's a term that everybody uses recently that I don't like at all. Um, closure? Yes, <laughs> and I don't like it at all. And, and this isn't closure, but this is, a, this is a resolution of something. You can't finish unfinishable business. <laughs> well, closure would mean that this never happened to nobody. You don't have any connection with somebody who was part of it. To me. Is this more about putting something away tidily? Yeah, yeah, it's where it should be. And it will feel good that it is somewhere doing some good, that it exists somewhere and that it's serving a purpose. If there hadn't been that potential for it, then I would have just wanted to burn it and have it not exist. One Blue Canoe was produced by James Raffin and Karma Jolly for Outfront in 2006. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. To tell us your story or to let us know what you think of ours, send questions, comments, rants, and raves to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Our last story for the day is one of Neil Sandel's favorites, 
It was produced for Outfront in 2002 by Sharon Bardavid, a consultant and motivational speaker in Toronto, and Iris Uday of the CBC. It's simple in concept, but manages to capture the delight and whimsy of childhood. It's called The Magic of Falling Teeth. I'm going to tell you how I lost my first tooth right away. It's not hurt one bit when I lost this tooth. And then, and then my tooth just fell out. Hello, I'm Sharon Bardavid in Toronto. This is Out Front. I lost six tooth, and she ate a piece of popcorn, and her tooth popped out into her hand. I'd like to invite you to step into a magic kingdom. All that happened is I just moved my tongue, and it came out. I lost my fifth tooth at Disney World, and it was exciting. My daughter, Lior, along with her six-year-old friends, have been inhabiting this kingdom for over a year. It's a world of obsession. Those who walk its paths are obsessed with wiggly teeth, bleeding teeth, teeth about to fall, teeth almost falling, tooth fairies, excitement and jealousies. It's a world that I had long forgotten. And then, as a parent, I'm irresistibly drawn in. Now, being a parent, you are required to perform certain rituals in the magical kingdom of lost teeth. It is imperative to exude a sense of confidence and experience when pulling your child's tooth at a moment's notice. I was the parent-in-waiting for Lior's first tooth. Well, we were driving to the barber from library, and then I punched my tooth and it got really wiggly, and we went inside to ask the people for a Kleenex. And then my mom took her fingers, and it just took her two yanks, and then she yanked it out. And following Toothland tradition, this monumental event had to be broadcast immediately to all important people in her life. Hi, Abba, I just lost my tooth. And um, I'm very proud of that because Nima yanked it out. Love you. Bye. Lior's excitement and obsession are keenly shared by all her friends, boys and girls alike. They share a culture and language all their own, a set of rituals and practices. Some of these are shared by the children alone, while some involve classroom teachers. Ah, well, I see two top teeth growing in, Uh and I see two bottom teeth. Ah, did you lose any other teeth? Uh-huh. Where? Yeah. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Oh. Here in this girl's mouth, she has two top teeth missing, and she looks very strange. And on her bottom, she lost two teeth. On the lo- top, she lost two teeth. And she looks very strange like that. She looks like a monster. But it's hard to describe what kind of monster, like a human being monster. Children are so very proud of their mouths and what's happening in their mouths. 
just uh, the other day, someone in my class lost um, his tooth, and then everybody started crowding around him. And like every time someone loses a tooth, like everybody wants to know more about it. Let's say you lost the most teeth, then you shouldn't like say that your whole class that I lost the most teeth. Na 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 na. I think it's important to me when other people lose teeth also because it makes me excited. I feel jealous because I might not have any wiggly teeth. When they lose a tooth, they'll come right to the teacher and they'll tell us they've lost a tooth and we will congratulate them, of course, and we'll go wash off the tooth and wrap it up for safekeeping. Um, of course, not before they've shown their tooth to their friends, <laughs> which is usually the case and um, then they, they take it home. The first tooth having departed from the body is followed by a second, a third, a fourth. My husband Bill witnessed the departure of Lior's second tooth. It happened at Disney World and this time she mustered the confidence to do it all by herself. So the second day we were there we went on one of the rides that goes down like it's down like a river and we came off and we were very excited and uh, and all of a sudden she's standing there she's got a Kleenex and she's holding the Kleenex in her mouth and she's got it and there's a little blood on the Kleenex and I look and I see that I can tell the moment has arrived when this tooth is ready to go. She knew herself, she had a nice touch she pulled it and I said, I think you got it. She didn't realize what I could see. I think she had it in the Kleenex. We opened the Kleenex and sure enough there, and her eyes like saucers and we were jumping up and down. It was such an exciting moment because half of the anticipation of this whole trip to Disney World was about the imminent falling out of the tooth. And it was such a wonderful, magical moment that I'll never forget. I think it's magic when you lose your teeth, because when your gums grow in, how could they push your tooth out if it isn't showing? I think it's magic that the tooth that comes under your gum knows exactly when to grow in when when your tooth falls out. I think that it kind of feels like magic when you lose a tooth. You feel all happy and like jumpy inside and you feel all excited. It feels like magic but it's uh, really just science and like uh, I think it's better that it feels like magic and it doesn't feel so scientific because then it would be really boring to lose teeth. In that overlap between science and magic, I too, for a brief moment, can make magic. I can pick up my wand, gather some fairy dust, and make a nightly appearance as the tooth fairy, transforming the tooth Lior leaves under her pillow into shiny coins. For my first tooth, I went to bed, and then my parents stayed up because they asked them to, because they wanted to know if there was such a thing as a tooth fairy. I still believe in the tooth fairy because I've never found uh, any evidence that uh, my mom keeps my teeth. 
Do you remember how 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 you lost your first or second or third tooth? Because I want to hear about one of your teeth that you lost. Well, the funny thing is, I can hardly remember. I can hardly remember. I kind of remember going um, back on my bike from my school where I was in grade one, and I would take my bike and go to my kindergarten teacher. And I remember wanting to always show her, and I really trusted her to wiggle my teeth. But I don't remember any details. I wondered, if I had lost so many of my memories, what do the elders in our family remember? What do my Auntie Becky and Bill's Aunt Evelyn remember about teeth? Five years of age, and I have all my teeth. I remember quite well losing my two front teeth. They were pulled out actually by my father, who constantly uh, supervised the teeth by jiggling them. And then when it was time to come out, he tied a string around my tooth and said that he was going to tie it to the door and open the door and the tooth would come out. I think that I always believed in the tooth fairy because my father made it a, such a wonderful story of fantasy. Well, I think that I eventually began to feel that the fairy really wasn't real. However, I still lived. I must say, my life has been full of fantasy. I have lived with fantasy all my life. I'm 82 years old. Seen from this point of view from 82 years, I don't think it was anything really world-shaking. Maybe it was at that time. But I can remember very clearly other kinds of things that happened at that time, and both in terms of content and in terms of emotion and so on. Well, you asked me about memory, and I think that you, the things which were really important to you at a specific age stay deeply ingrained in your memory. You know, there's only so much that remains meaningful to you as the years go, go on because there's so many additional things that are meaningful. So uh, my guess is that uh, something like losing your baby teeth would not be among those critical kinds of things that you remember. My guess is that Lior at 82 also won't uh, put so much store by her tooth fairy. Perhaps Auntie Becky is right. Perhaps Lior, too, will remember little or nothing at all about this experience. But maybe there's another explanation that can account for the sense of magic that has been part of our year. A Jewish parable is told that a baby, while in its mother's womb, studies the Torah, all the wonders and wisdom of the world. And just at the moment of birth, an angel comes and ever so lightly touches the baby right above its upper lip. And at that moment, the baby forgets. It forgets everything it has learned. This is why, according to the parable, 
we have that special crease between our lips and nose, one enduring reminder of that touch. Throughout life, says the tradition, whenever we come in contact with something of that Torah, of that ancient wisdom, it all comes alive, allowing us, if only for a brief moment, to connect again with the lost secrets of the universe. Perhaps this explains why my daughter travels the kingdom of falling teeth so enthusiastically and so naturally. Lior is experiencing again, maybe, the lost forgotten secrets hidden by her encounter with her angel. And by association, I too, as a parent, get to experience a hint, a tiny flavor of that same lost magic, the magic that for me too was lost when the angel touched me. In Toronto, I'm Sharon Bardavid. The Magic of Falling Teeth was produced by Sharon Bardavid and Iris Uday for Outfront in 2002. Happy birthday. Happy anniversary. Mazel tov to Outfront for 10 years of great work. Over 1,300 pieces that have made storytelling on the radio rich, textured, and powerful. We bow. We thank you. We raise our glass. Congratulations. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is hosted by Gwen Maxi, produced by Delaney Hall, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Read support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. The Third Coast Festival is also supported by Stephen Gross of Real Life Weddings. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.